Welcome back to the Julie Norman Show. Uh, today, our topic is Hook Me Up, Connectivity in Times of Crisis. Today, I'm going to be joined by Dr. James Knuckles, who's joining us from Forli, Italy. Uh, James is consultant with the World Bank and specifically with their Energy Sector Management Assistance Program, or SMAP. And James manages the global facility on mini-grids, so we'll talk a bit about that today. I was really interested to have James on today for his general experiences and insights on just sustainable development in general. He always has lots of good stuff to say on that, but especially right now with COVID-19. So many of us are you know, on our laptops, using devices, relying a lot on Wi-Fi. And so to me, the fact that he's focusing on mini-grids and the renewable energy and power angle as well as the supply chain angle is so interesting and relevant, especially when thinking about low-income countries and the global south. So James Knuckles, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Julie. This is great. Um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. So James, you know, I, again, you work on this really interesting concept of community scale, renewable energy in low-income countries. But what is that? What does it mean? What's a mini-grid? Why is all this important? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, okay, so as of today, there's about 840 million people around the world that do not have any access to electricity. So um, they don't have any electric light. They certainly don't have any electric appliances in their homes. Um, maybe they're trying to run a small business or a local shop, but they have, you know, they have no zero electricity. And if the sort of general trend of countries trying to provide more electricity to their citizens continues on a sort of business as usual scenario, um, about 1.2 billion people will be left without access to electricity by 2030. So basically what that means is globally, the pace of electrification is not keeping up with population growth. So the way that a lot of countries are thinking about trying to tackle this problem, either globally or within their own borders, is generally three approaches. One is to extend the existing main grid. So I live in Italy, and here we're um, in my town of Forli. We are provided electricity by the main grid utility company, which is called ERA, H-E-R-A. And that and would be most... That's how most people would get their energy, right? Exactly. That, that, okay. That's how you know. That's how you get your electricity uh, in London. That's how you know most people in in um, you know Europe and the U.S. and um, and actually most of Asia get their electricity from main grid utility companies. So one option is just to extend the main grid as far as possible to connect as many people as possible. But there are lots of places in countries where um, the main grid is, you know, it's a fairly weak infrastructure. Maybe the utility company is literally bankrupt. And so extending the main grid is not a great option if you're trying to move quickly. So the other, the other options that countries have in their toolbox are providing solar lanterns and solar home systems to households and small businesses in sort of very remote and rural areas where it's just not, it doesn't make any sense to try to extend out the, the grid. 
But then there's this huge chunk of people, and, and actually there was some research by the World Bank and, and backed up by the International Energy Association that thinks that, and also Bloomberg New Energy Finance, that basically says, look, there's this huge chunk in the middle where you're not in an urban area, um, which means you would probably be best served by the national utility or the main utility company, and you're not out in the in the far remote rural villages where it probably makes sense to do solar home systems. You're sort of in a peri-urban area or in a large town um, that's just not connected to any grid. That's actually probably about 40% of the population in a lot of low-income countries fall into this middle category. And the best way to provide electricity to these people is through what we call, at the, at the World Bank, we call them mini-grids. But you can actually think of them as like a micro-utility company. So the way that we think about mini-grids is they're, an, they're a self-contained electricity system that you know, produces and then distributes electricity to everybody in a, in a uh, localized area. But it's not just like 10 or 20 households. You know, there are mini-grids around the world that um, uh, you know, serve tens of thousands of customers for like a large town. Um, we're doing a, a, a mini-grid project, just to give you an example, we're doing a mini-grid project in Haiti, and the average size of the town that we're serving with a quote-unquote mini-grid is around five to 6,000 people. I mean, there are towns that are, have 15,000 people that are served by these micro-utilities. Micro so, yeah, so I think that, that, that's where the mini-grids sort of fit into this broader um, electricity access agenda that is running both globally through the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. It's, it's actually part of the seventh Sustainable Development Goal is this access to electricity. Um, and then also nationally, you know, countries, uh, actually, it turns out access to electricity is a, is a major political issue. We, we tend to see lots of activity and excitement around electricity access in the lead up to an election, um, either you know, at the parliamentary level or at the presidential level. So it's a huge issue for countries too, not just you know, for the United Nations. National governments are really concerned with providing electricity to their citizens. So that's where that's where mini grids can come in. You, James, we've been talking on kind of the household basis, but I'm thinking you know, a lot of the sectors that we're always relying on, but especially these days, hospitals, healthcare facilities. How are mini grids important for those kinds of services now, especially during COVID-19? And what are mini grids doing to get electricity to, um, to healthcare facilities and hospitals in some of the contexts you're talking about? Sure. So um, let me take us back for a second to the Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone. The Ebola crisis in Sierra Leone sort of caught the energy sector, I think, a little bit off guard in the sense that there were a lot of clinics that were really doing the best that they could with inadequate electricity supply. And one of the one of the rapid response activities to sort of rectify that problem was this sort of neat approach where it was a UK Department for International Development and UN Ops joint program to install a solar hybrid electricity system 
at a health clinic in a in a town. Okay. So that you provide immediate access to electricity to the priority healthcare facility that's dealing with this crisis. But then the important thing here is that that in that that infrastructure that you just built, the solar panels, the maybe the diesel the the backup diesel generator, the batteries, that's going to remain there after the crisis passes. And so what what you know, what can you do with those installed assets to make them benefit the entire community? Well, what happened is that program basically reached out to private sector mini grid developers and said, look, we've installed the generation system. If you come in and install the distribution system, then you can serve all of these extra companies and we'll give you the generation system for free. Um, and so the, the, the mini grid developers used the community health center generation infrastructure as the basis for a mini grid that then served the entire community. So it almost started like as a response to that crisis, but now has you know, become something that's just an accessible everyday uh, thing just because it started with that. Is that yes? Okay. Yes, that's exactly right. So these were communities that had zero access to electricity. Their community health center basically maybe had a diesel generator that, you know, maybe they got fuel, maybe they didn't because of the, the, the fuel supply chain issues during a crisis. So you come in with this solar hybrid system, provide reliable access to emergency electricity, and then after the crisis passes, you can then extend the system to become a mini grid for the entire community. So let's fast forward to today. COVID-19 is growing exponentially in low-income countries, often not undetected, but I would say underdetected because of the a lack of testing resources. And very soon, if not already, hospitals and health clinics are going to be facing a surge in patients. Most of these hospitals and almost all of the rural health clinics have unreliable or zero access to electricity. So what we are, we, when I say we here, I mean the World Bank, but also a collection of other multilateral development banks and bilateral develop and, and national development banks, other investors and, and social impact investors, we're trying to get, get things moving very quickly on the ground to basically follow this, the success of the Sierra Leone model, but do it globally in countries where this is, this is needed. So this means um, procuring as quickly as possible these solar hybrid systems for priority healthcare facilities. And I'll talk about what we mean by priority healthcare facilities in a second. But you procure them in a way that makes it at least possible that after the COVID-19 crisis passes, these systems can either be extended as is or easily upgraded to become mini grids that serve the entire community. So the types of healthcare facilities that are being targeted by this sort of global initiative are main hospitals in urban and peri-urban areas. These would probably be connected to some main, some type of main grid 
they get very unreliable electricity. And so what we would do is the system there would be sort of a backup to the main grid electricity. So that whenever the main grid shuts off, um, this system automatically kicks in and you provide electricity to the hospital. The other, so there, there's three other types of facilities. Then one is, then another one is this rural healthcare clinic or, or sort of rural hospital. These facilities are, you know, much smaller. They're not in, in main population centers. They're probably not going to be providing intensive care to patients, but they still need electricity for vaccine and, and other medication refrigerators, bedside monitors. So those the main hospitals and these rural health clinics. And then there's this other sort of healthcare facility called like, I almost call it like a field hospital. You know, a lot of these clinics and, and, and hospitals are going to just be literally overrun. I mean, we saw this in, in Northern Italy and Northern Italy is one of the best equipped healthcare systems in the world, like right, actually right. in the world. And these hospitals had to set up emergency facilities, right? So these temporary facilities are also on our on our list for for trying to secure electricity for them uh, urgently. And then the final one is this whole ecosystem of other types of facilities that are supporting the COVID-19 response. So these would be testing laboratories, local and national government offices that are coordinating the response to make sure that they have electricity to be able to stay connected to the internet all the time, make sure that they can get their communications out to their local field offices, record educational videos. I mean, these are, these are all things that these you know, national coordinating bodies are doing, but they can't do it without electricity. And then you have the, the entire cold chain for treatment medications. So, you know, remdesivir, I guess, just came out with this positive uh, clinical trial. So maybe that needs to be rolled out on a global scale over the coming months. Well, that needs to be kept, I think, at, at most at room temperature and ideally a little bit colder than that. So there's a, there's a whole cold chain. Keeping things cold in tropical climates requires electricity. Factories that are sort of ramping up production of masks, of gloves, of hand sanitizer, they require electricity. So there's, there's this whole ecosystem of, of facilities that are supporting the COVID response that also require electricity. And, and we're trying to you know, get as many of these solar hybrid systems installed at as many of these facilities as quickly as possible. You're listening to The Julie Norman Show. And James, you've said a lot about the importance of trying to get electricity through low-income countries, especially to the hospitals and the clinics, and especially right now during COVID-19. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more, too, about the challenge right now with corona, about about really how that's even possible given the limitations on the supply and the movement of goods, of things that make things like mini grids possible, as well as things like food and just what people need on a day-to-day basis, you know, when all these things are paused or stopped because of the virus, how do we move forward on development, on food aid, on things like mini grids? What is, what's your take on that? So the way that I think about supply chains is not like one link to the next, so it's not actually a chain. I think of it more in terms of a network, which makes this a bit, in my mind, makes the, makes the COVID-19 thing a bit scarier because 
you start to see how one disruption in the network can cascade to cause failures. And by failures, I guess, in this point, in this case, I mean lack of supply at points along the network where, where something critical is actually needed. So I'm, I'm talking a bit sort of theoretical here for, for a second without using concrete examples, but you can sort of insert any example you want. So um, like let's, let's, take, let's take Europe and the US as an example. There have been huge supply chain issues with ventilators, masks, other protective personal equipment, um, just because you know, there was a, such a huge demand for these that right. spiked so quickly, there was no supply to get the products where they needed to be at the right time. In low-income countries, this is really pervasive. So the, the sectors that come to mind in, right now, obviously electricity, I'll talk about that in a second because that's something we're coming up against, but also food, um, the, the suite of medical supplies that you need to treat these patients. There's a, there's a few ways that COVID-19 is, is disrupting these supply chains. One is, Right now, our best tool globally to slow the spread is physical distancing and, and basically lockdowns of cities. Well, what that does is it removes people and production from the supply and distribution networks for everything. I mean, everything that you're trying to, to get from one place to another. So, what, you know, one of the challenges that, that companies are telling us it, you know, we're trying to get we're trying to get these these solar hybrid systems installed quickly. Companies are saying, "Look, there actually aren't enough people at the port to process equipment fast enough, right? Like there are, you know, ships are literally backed up at the port. Containers are backed up at borders because there just aren't enough people to process the paperwork because people are under lockdown orders, right? I mean, that's just one issue, right? It just introduces these whole introduces a whole series of inefficiencies into the supply network. Um, and I know you're working more in the electricity aspect, but you did mention the food aspect as well. And I've been yeah. reading a couple of different things on that this yeah. week with this, this issue of, um, right. Of just food shortages, especially in low income countries. And that's everything from countries that rely on world food program distribution, but more importantly, just the movement of food into places that is, that is hard, um, it's hard usually to access, and yep. especially during droughts or seasons where it's hard for people to cultivate locally. So can you speak a little bit more to that and yeah. uh, what some of the impacts of that might be in terms of global poverty rates and whatnot? Yeah, totally. I Actually, it's funny, Julie. I was just reading this, too, because I think there's a very important food-slash-energy nexus that a lot of countries are going to have to be thinking about here in the next few months. Um, as harvest season approaches or, or passes. So one of the immediate effects of, of COVID is obviously this sort of you know, lockdown and, and challenges to moving people, but also it's causing huge disruptions to unstable incomes. <laughs> so if, if, you're, if you're a day laborer, um, if you, you know, you're, you're a farmer with irregular incomes, if you're a sort of a micro, a small, running a small business or a micro entrepreneur, 
basically you don't you know you don't have a secure stable income and this is hundreds of millions of people around the world that, that live on, on on this sort of irregular income flows and many in states that don't have like an uh, an unemployment insurance or precisely like, you know, this kind of package kicking in as well yeah sorry Exa go on. exactly no exactly so so you have there's no safety net and you have unstable income and a crisis like covid comes along and I mean, if you weren't living hand to mouth before, you probably are now. Yeah. Right. Which means you, if you're a farmer, for example, you certainly don't have extra money to buy grains or, or seeds for next year, or other agricultural inputs like fertilizer that you might need, or you know, um, pest prevention products or things like that. Right. There's no way for you to get your food to the market in time, and so you have no way to sell your food. Maybe mm -hmm. the markets are the markets. Many of the markets are even closed, right? Right, or certainly less populated than they were before. So your income is down. So it's just there's this there's this cascading downward negative impact on uh, on the food on, on people that are involved in the food sector, and therefore the the availability of food and the production of food in, in very low income areas that I think, you know, is, is a challenge, not just from a supply chain perspective, but also from basically a community development perspective. What are some ways, what are some ways that you can support people who maybe are producing food, but have no way to sell it who, or who are consuming, consuming food, but in a very sort of, you know, instead of, 30% of their household income, it's food is now 80% of their household income. Like what are right. some things you can do for them? And James, I know a lot of your work has been in Haiti. Can you, can you give us just a little bit of background on what you've been seeing in Haiti in particular? I know you said you were working on, on a project, not a plan for Haiti in particular, but maybe just an example from that country as some of the specific challenges that are being faced and then what, uh, what people are trying to do about it locally or from the international side. Yeah, Haiti is a magical country. <laughs> so it, it's a it's the kind of thing where once you start working there, you know, your chances are um, you're going to find yourself coming back to it for your for your entire career. And that that's what happened to me. I, I started working there in 2011, um, working for a company that was selling solar lanterns and solar home systems uh, in the wake of the the 2010 earthquake. Um, and I've, I've been very involved with Haiti from a research perspective and also a, a work perspective ever since. Yeah. Um, I don't know where to begin. So, so basically, you know, let's looking at the, the electricity sector, um, the official statistics, I think, for Haiti is something like 15 percent of the of the population has access to a reliable source of electricity, meaning 85% of, of the population does not. Right. Um, the national government is very concerned about this, and they have a huge initiative in place to, to sort of provide increased access to electricity over time. And the two approaches that seem to be working pretty well at the moment are mini grids and solar home systems. So you know, that's, that's where that is sort of where I come in from a professional level, but then also I did some research on the supply chains for solar home systems that are sold in Haiti. And 
in both cases, I think something interesting that we haven't touched on yet in our conversation is sort of what types of companies are involved in this work. And by and large, what we see are companies that are not in it to get rich quick. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're, you're, in, it for, you're in it for a reason. Uh, so what we, what we tend to see are these social, I would call them social enterprises, that they're in it because the social mission is embedded with their strategy, right? It, they, are, they are in it to make a difference in people's, a positive difference in people's lives by providing mm -hmm. them with electricity. But they want to do so in a way that is, is economically sustainable over the long run, which means they don't want to be completely reliant on grants. The cool thing about these, these social enterprises is that they, they're able to, to live equally in two different worlds. One, the world of commerce and business. And so they're very good. They're very savvy business people, right? They know how to set up a supply chain. They know how to motivate their employees. They know how to, you know, create a balance sheet, pro forma financial statements, right? I mean, they are businesses. They know how to operate a business. But at the same time, they speak the language of donors and NGOs. And so they're able to capture their social impact and package it and present it in a nice way that is attractive to donors so that the social enterprise can say, look, this is the great work that we're doing. An extra million dollar grant will help us scale our business from 100,000 customers to uh, a million customers over the next five years, right? They, they've got a special skill, which is this sort of packaging of their social impact and, and almost selling it to donors in order to get either free or sort of subsidized money from the donors. But they use that money not just to sort of continue their operations, it's always used, and I say this because we haven't seen any counterexamples, it's always used to grow their business, right? They use it almost as like seed capital. Yeah, and that that is, I mean, it is crucial. I mean, it, having worked more on the NGO side, but then seeing how difficult it is to keep things moving past a one-year funding cycle, or if you're lucky, a three-year funding cycle. Right. Um, and I think it's, I think there's some instinct often to push back against private sector or, um, you know, organizations that people see as for-profit operating the humanitarian sector. And yet, when you're actually working in the humanitarian sector, you see the need for enterprises like you're talking about that can bridge the two to have that sustainability while still making the social impact. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and I, I'll just press you a little bit more on this, because I know you're working under the, the context of the World Bank. And and the World Bank is another organization that I think, I would say a lot of people kind of love to hate the World Bank and uh, assume a lot of uh, neoliberal agendas with it and whatnot. And and yet so much of what you're talking about, so much of what we know is actually being done is so necessary and is so crucial. So I, I don't know if you can speak to that at all with how working through the World Bank on more of these social enterprise missions and if there's any tensions there or not. Sure. Well, first of all, I should say that I'm probably not authorized to give the official World Bank line on any of this stuff. So what I'm what I'm what I'm doing is I'll, I'm coming at it from I can give an insider's perspective, but I wouldn't take it as like the official World Bank stance on anything. Right. Sure. But that said, um, the the companies that we work with in the off grid electricity space 
are, even if they don't think of themselves as, solar, as social enterprises, they are. Because why else would you be in this business? You're not right. going to make huge profits by selling your services to low-income households in low-income countries. Fair enough. You know what I mean? I mean, no, think about it. I mean, if you're, if you're a mini-grid developer um, and you're... Your goal is to build, so there's, you know, one of our biggest, one of the World Bank's biggest mini-grid projects is in Nigeria. It's a um, $150 million investment in mini-grids. Over the next five years, they want to build 850 mini-grids. Well, there are developers that are, you know, putting together investment prospectuses for portfolios of like 50 mini-grids at a time, right? So they're really serious about the Nigeria business. But these are mini grids that sell electricity to low income households, right? As an alternative, they could just say, no, 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 forget that. We're going to sell our solar panels and our batteries to the, to rooftop, to the roof, to companies to put on their rooftop to uh, basically get the company off the grid and help them save a whole bunch of money. That's mm -hmm. a much more lucrative business model, right? And, and the companies know how to do this. So there's like but, an intentional choice to be more. Yeah. Uh, socially impactful uh, absolutely with that market absolutely and so the companies that we're working with you know they 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 have even if they don't actually call themselves a social enterprise they are because they have the social mission at heart um maybe you know maybe it's not the case everywhere and in every sector but certainly i think in the offered electricity sector these are the companies that we that we see and the reason that we like to work i mean we're we're at the World Bank, the national government is our client. So the World Bank doesn't actually give money to companies. I think that's important to, to point out. World Bank money goes to the national government, typically in a special bank account that's co-managed by the World Bank and the national government. And then it's that money that is then distributed to the private sector. The World Bank money doesn't actually, we don't actually give money directly to the private sector. The only part of the World Bank that can do that is the International Finance Corporation. But we prefer working with private sector companies, these, so, these social enterprises in the off-grid energy space, because that's where the innovation is. You know, it's, those, it's these companies that are bringing the cost of, of a mini-grid from a dollar per kilowatt hour to 50 cents a kilowatt hour today to 20 cents a kilowatt hour by 2030 because of the the innovations that, that they're putting together. Yeah, and that are making this more accessible and affordable for people and for communities. Absolutely. Yep. They can move faster. They're, they're much more agile and, and nimble. And they really do have the social mission at heart. And Dan, I feel like we keep on talking, but I know your, um, your baby is waiting for you amongst other things. And just before we close, are there any... Um, books or articles or other podcasts that you'd recommend to listeners who might be interested in learning more about this or about other things you've been talking about? Sure. There's the, 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 the report. If you want to learn about mini grids, I think the best thing out there today is a report that I co-authored. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, this is a shameless plug. It's a, it's a World Bank report called Mini Grids for Half a Billion People. So if you just Google mini grids for half a billion people. It's the first thing that comes up. It really, it's a great resource to learn about all things mini grids. And it's relatively short. It's like 60 pages or so with lots of nice pictures and graphics. But then you, you had warned me that you were going to ask me about, about book recommendations. And I, 
I tend to not read for pleasure when uh, about electricity and mini grids because I need to like switch off. Um, <laughs> literally, so, yeah, yeah, literally switch switch off. So the I was looking at our bookshelf and just picking out things that I, <clears throat> I use to switch off. The book that's currently on my nightstand is The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. Mm -hmm. But my favorite author of the moment, uh, of the past couple of years, is a guy named Patrick DeWitt, who writes not thrillers, but he writes so beautifully and crafts these stories that are so enthralling that you actually fall into them and forget about everything else. All right, well, I know Lorenzo and others are waiting for you. So um, thank you so much to Dr. James Knuckles. So again, you've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. You can subscribe and listen on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Uh, be kind, stay well, take care of each other, and please join us next time. Thank you.